G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. And of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you. Now today, as if you listened to last week, and I hope you all did, today is part two of the show when I've been talking to Sue Baisley, Sean Mars and Carrie Ewens, um, who gladly came on last week and we ran out of time. And that's because sometimes I, I can't stop myself from chatting. So I'm picking up from last week. And uh, if, if you remembered last week, we talked a bit more about uh, our students' research. And, and today I'm going to finish off a little bit about that and then also talking about how um, kind of volunteering that they've been doing here in Kingston. So um, thank you for joining us again. This is part two. Welcome back, Sue, Sean and Carrie. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us, Colette. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us on again. <laughs> I didn't have much choice, really. <laughs> but that's beside it. So, Carrie, I feel really bad that last week I actually didn't really get to talk to you very much because your aunt and Sean took most of the floor. So I do apologise for that. So I want to give you most of the floor today, so to speak. So um, with that, what I'd like to do is then ask you about your research. Carrie, your research topic is how do changes in water turbidity due to permafrost thaw affect zooplankton communities in high Arctic lakes? Now, I know you haven't collected any data yet, but can you give us an overview of the purpose of your research study? Yes, absolutely. So this project came about 16 years spent at the Cape Bounty Watershed Observatory okay. in the Arctic um, with some of the geography professors at Queen's. So they've spent a lot of time collecting data on permafrost thaw and more of the you know, physical geography side of things. And they've been watching these two lakes, which they call the West Lake and the East Lake. And um, about five years ago, they realized that one of the lakes, the West Lake, became incredibly turbid. So that's sort of the science word for murky. Thank and, you. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, so it's really <laughs> dark and murky. And um, they also were tracking the, the Arctic char populations in these lakes. And Arctic char are a type of fish, and they're usually the top predator in, in a lot of Arctic lakes. And okay. in, in the lake that went murky the char population became very unhealthy and started to decline. Now, the reason why that lake became murky was because the permafrost in the area, picture 75 degrees north, really cold. The ground is, most of it is permanently frozen all year. It's starting to thaw because our atmosphere is getting warmer. Right. And that's releasing a lot of sediments, uh, organic carbon nutrients out of those soils and into the lakes. Right. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, well, well, why were these fish populations declining? And fish rely on a really strong basis of the lower trophic levels. So, you know, the species that they feed on, sort right. of like in a building for the, the top of the building to be sturdy, everything below it also has to be sturdy. Right. Um, so it, it becomes a question of, well, what's really happening to the zooplankton population, which, which is... Uh, the grazers in the lake and they're what the fish feed on so that's what we're looking at so my first question was how, how far apart are these two lakes because why is one 
is the permafrost in one area uh, thawing quicker than another? Right. So, so they are in different watersheds for sure. So they're they're actually only a few kilometers apart, but they have different watersheds, which is driven by uh, what rivers are flowing into them as well as the altitude of the land. So you can track a watershed by asking, well, if one raindrop falls on this area of land, where will it go? Which lake will it drain into? So they don't have an overlap there. And so basically, it's a good question. Why is the permafrost thawing in only that one lake? It's hard to say exactly. Um, There are a lot of different reasons because obviously the the solar uh, heat input on the land is equal, but it kind of has to do with like how much ice content there is, what exactly is making up the permafrost in the various areas. Which actually makes it as a, a scientist fantastic the fact you got two two lakes so close to each other that are so showing so many different properties <laughs> so it exactly. must be lovely for you guys to be able to uh, sort of study both of those yeah so well before going into each of the two lakes you know what are the zooplankton and what role do they play in the arctic child population health right uh primarily the uh, zooplankton that that are there are definitely cladocera so there are many different species. The, arguably the most well-known is Daphnia. Um, there are a lot of different species of Daphnia of that genus. Um, they're all very, very small filter feeders that you uh, do really need a microscope to look at. Um, and while I haven't had the chance to look at any of the samples that sort of have come from the preliminary studies uh, there, so I don't have an excellent understanding of which species are there, there is a range of, of possible players. And and you're saying in terms of these these zooplanktons um, are being disrupted because of because of the thawing of the frost permafrost, which releases more carbon and things like that. Is that if I understood that correctly? Yes, that's correct. That that's the theory, but no one's really ever looked at well, well, how are the zooplankton being affected by all of this chemistry change? And so, of course, if there's less zooplankton or some of the ones you named, I can't remember what they're called, Diaf something or other, Daphne or something. <laughs> Daphne, um, yeah. Daphne, If there's a, a reduced amount of that, then, of course, there's not as much for the char to eat. Is that correct? Correct, yes. Which is what's, what's affecting them. So it seems like a logical scenario here of, you know, with the permafrost doing it, it's affecting the zooplankton, which is normally the main eating source for the char. So if the zooplankton's been disrupted, the amounts of that, then of course the char don't have as much to eat and therefore the zoo, the populations are different. Is it a matter of the amount of um, reduced numbers of char or just they're not as healthy as they used to be? So it's a mix of both. Again, I, I'm still becoming in the yes. process of becoming an expert on this. So I don't want to say anything that's incorrect that the fish experts will say, you know, what is she talking about? Um, but, but they definitely found that the population was declining. So that means like the number of individuals. Right. Um, and there's also uh, something that you can look at in fish, which is called an autolith. Uh, spelled O-T-O-L-I-T-H. And okay. it's a very small, I believe it's a bone, if I remember correctly from my fish courses. <laughs> but it sort of acts 
the way that tree rings do, where you can look at it and, you know, from tree rings, you can determine, well, this was a really great growth season or this might have been a drought season, depending on the uh, width of the rings. So it's, it's okay, like right. that. Yeah, so they so, looked at those. I'm not sure if this is fair to ask you this, but if you're looking at, so we've got the zooplankton and then we've got the char, what eats the char if you're looking at the food chain? So humans do. And that's sort of one of the, falls under the applications and importance of the work. Um, there are many, you know, Inuit communities in the high Arctic, in the north of Canada, who uh, rely on char as a, one of the very important parts of their uh, diet. So that's that's a real world application then, isn't it? So yes. so the, perma, the thawing of the permafrost is having a, a real knock-on effect for a lot of different species, including humans. Yes, exactly. Which is not so good. So how are students like yourself uh, who do field work and, and preparing for the next field season, how are, you, how are you going to do that in the context of travel restrictions due to COVID-19? Because it, it's, I imagine even this year, did, were you able to get up this, there this year or has that been put on hold? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Um, so I wasn't able to go up this summer. I was supposed to have my first field season, you know, this summer in July and August. That's when mm. that's when we go up. Um, when it's not so cold up there, you know, it's, it's five degrees as opposed to minus forty. <laughs> but no one was able to go up this year because with travel restrictions and and the north and the territories really not having that sort of medical infrastructure that we do have in the provinces. And I'm definitely not the only graduate student in this position. People are dealing with it in different ways. So I know of some people who are planning, uh, you know, plans A, B, C, and D, depending on what they're able to do. So potentially moving their their field work to study a different biome, you know, somewhere in Ontario. Right. For me, that's that's unfortunately not really an option because part of the novelty of the work was being in this this setting, which is very far north. And and right. what makes it so interesting is that fewer researchers study it because it has such a short uh, field season, and right. also it's just so remote. Was uh, was that? Was there any researchers up there who can continue to collect the data that you've that you were hoping to be able to collect yourself? So it's possible. I, I know of. So I, I'm co-supervised by uh, by the biology department and the geography department, and I know right. that my geography supervisor um, has a, a student who lives in in Nunavut, I believe, okay. in Iqaluit. So that is definitely one possibility, and will be sort of discussing all the options as we as time moves forward and as we progress it's not quite the same as being able to do it yourself though is it <laughs> no it's not you do have to put you know a lot of trust in in the people who are collecting your data yes yes okay well I wish you best of luck with all of that because it sounds fascinating and, and the more we learn about what's happening with with the permafrost thawing um, to prove to to those non-believers about climate change is is going to be important for all of us. Yes, exactly. So everyone, uh, we've heard some fascinating um, research, and and what has been interesting um, is how how both or how research can be connected on different variables, which is which is very very interesting. So from one hand, you've got heritage, 
looking at heritage and the one you've got surveillance going on but then there's the connection between the surveillance going on in Paris and they're looking to see what's going also trying to figure out what's happening in the in the uh, in the Americas so these sort of connections are very very interesting how seemingly programs that are totally different can actually all connect and even with Carrie um, you know she might be working like has been mentioned the physical side of, of science but her supervisor is in geography and that has also a connection there too so all these sorts of things research can be totally fascinating and we should never just look at it in, in one plane there's all, all sorts of these connections okay well before we get on to the next topic let's take a little break something i haven't aired in a very long time is my favorite grad band groove commute and the piece is called chuck berry So let's have a listen to that, but don't go away as we will be right back after. back everyone you are listening to a grad chat on cfrc 101.9 fm and i am currently chatting to susan baisley from geography sean miles from history and carrie ewins from biology both last week and today we have heard about their research but why these three got together in the first place is some of their volunteer work that they've been doing over the summer and as we like to say our students do lots of lots of things not just their research they they do get involved in the community and they enjoy getting involved in the community. So I'd like to maybe start with you, Sean. 
you've been involved in this program called Open Doors Ontario this summer. Mm-hmm. So, so what is that and why did you want to get involved with the program? So it's actually, so it's a program run uh, by the Ontario Heritage Trust okay. that, that really tries to, it throws a couple doors, well, it throws some doors open to various heritage and historical sites, museums, and small little nooks and crannies around the province to, to really invite the public in to, to get a good sense of, of, the lo- of local history and local heritage. So that, that can include things like the lower burial ground that um, who's been hard at work excavating to cultural sites, to land, large landscapes, trails and whatnot. So it's, really, it's a really cool chance for, for people in Ontario to get a good sense of, of their local history. Which for you must be fascinating being a historian. Yeah, I really enjoyed the chance to to participate and come out and see some of these sites that you don't uh, you don't necessarily always get to see because they're sort of the the, the fun special part about uh, about it being doors open is that a lot of the places aren't places that you can conventionally enter. Um, right. I know some some of them are museums and trails which you can generally go into. Uh, but a lot of the places, such as the lower burial ground, which we'll talk about in a moment, is is not as open. You can't just sort of walk in off the street and um, start bothering Sue in the middle of her work. <laughs> well, you could, but <laughs> yeah, you could, yeah. <laughs> it'll be it'll put a timeline behind. <laughs> so, Sue, why don't you talk about um, the lower burial ground? Because I mean, that has been what you've been doing in past summers, trying to excavate it and get it back to to figure out who was in that lower burial ground. Right. So um, the lower burial ground is situated at the corner of Queen and Montreal streets in Kingston. It is the earliest um, loyalist burial ground. Um, And when we think about that location, if people have seen it, um, it's it's where St. Paul's church is, but Mm -hmm. actually St. Paul's Church was built considerably later. Um, The lower burial ground was established when uh, the refugees came from the uh, just immediately post-American Revolution and and came here to settle in Kingston or Cataraqui at the time. It became Kingstown in 1783-84. So we can see pieces of it. Uh, right at the corner when you when you stand on the street you can look in but then you see the church but there's actually a portion of the lower burial ground that is situated underneath a building so it's underneath a Sunday school that was constructed in um, 1872 and that's the part that's inaccessible to the public so the lower burial ground restoration society began a project in in 2019 to clean up that location underneath the structure and to record the grave markers that are under there because it was it was quite a mess had been covered over since 1872 and then basically had just had a lot of debris construction debris and garbage placed on top just thrown in and with the with various additions of things like plumbing and upgrading electrical it it was quite a mess so the lord burial ground restoration society received funding from the city of kingston heritage fund to start this process as cultural resource recording project so i became involved because it is considered to be archaeology even though we weren't actually excavating 
right. burials. So we were cleaning up, documenting, and it was a community archaeology and history project. So everybody that was involved uh, were volunteers. That's that's basically the, the project we worked last summer. And we were to do the pro phase two of the project this year, but of course that is on hold. So uh, hopefully mm -hmm. next year we will be able to continue that recording process and getting that information out to the public. Yes, yes. Okay. So Sean, what were you doing as part of this open doors at this burial ground? So I was doing a few different things. Largely I was helping facilitate the tours. So groups uh, pre-booked. In, right. in, in little bubbles and they would come in every hour and uh, John Grenville, Sue's husband, who's, um, who's part of the Lower Burial Ground uh, Restoration Society and Sue herself would give tours to the groups. And so I was, I was part, of, part of just he helping out with, with the groups, providing some of the information, uh, running little errands, running some slideshows, holding some signs and generally just sharing some of what I know of the site and the local history. Which would be awesome. As a, Like I said, as an historian, you'd be fascinated with that. And Kerry, what about you? What, why, you know, what was your part in, these, in this Open Doors Ontario? And why did you want to be a part of this? Yeah, so um, I've, I've definitely attended a few Open Doors Ontario events, you know, as a visitor in Toronto in the past. I'm, I'm from Toronto and I only just moved to right. Kingston on September 1st. So uh -huh. it's been one month. And I, I was connected to it through Susie, uh, who is my aunt, or Sue, as she's known in Kingston, uh, yeah. who I've known for my <laughs> whole life. And really, she just uh, realized she might need a few more helpers on the day to manage groups of people, especially due to COVID and just making sure that you know, everyone knew where they were going, so we didn't have anyone wandering around, and we right. could just keep control of the situation. So I said, yes, I'm happy to help, and I I didn't have any expectations, but I was pleasantly surprised that I came out of the day having a much more thorough understanding of the history of Kingston, uh, the history right. of the area, and a, a really good understanding of this incredible burial ground, which Sue has been studying for the last few years. I know, it is pretty amazing, isn't it? And there's nothing like being coerced by a family member. <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed Sue was being... Yeah, and I noticed Sue was being very quiet on that part. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> but, but I think that's fantastic. I mean... It, Obviously, you've been doing this kind of work before, as you said, in, in Toronto. So it's nice that you're able to continue this in Kingston. And, you know, one of the conversations Sue and I have had in the past is none of us ever really understand the history and the geography and everything about where we live. We're very good at finding out about places where we don't live. Mm -hmm. But it's it's we need to learn more about where we're actually living ourselves. What is the history of the of the lands that we're living on? And of course, in Kingston, the lands are the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe. So even that part, you know, we need to understand that better. And then, as history moved along, all of that and how it all impacts each other. So I think it's great that you put your hand up to volunteer. Yeah. And I guess it's a way for you as, a, as a, a newbie to Kingston to get to know a bit more about the city and the people. Yeah, exactly. And I, I even am already 
teaching others. Um, for example, I was speaking with a few people who did their undergrads at Queen's and are, na are now in grad school. And I mentioned, you know, yes, Skeleton Park, the upper burial ground. And they said, <laughs> oh, is that why it's called Skeleton Park? <laughs> <laughs> so there's all these things right so we've got to learn and it's nice that we can share this and, and what a great place to do it as part of a university of that collective knowledge gathering which is fantastic yeah, yeah exactly okay everyone so you know this is this has been quite a session I've been loving it and uh, I, I really do thank you all for for coming on the show um, being in two parts is Sometimes I think, you know, our, our show is, is way too short and uh, clearly there's times when we need to do a part two. And I've done it a few times and this is clearly one of those. So I do appreciate you all coming back on a second time to, to talk about not only your research, but what you're doing within the Kingston community to help us all understand a bit more about where we, where we live. So I really do appreciate you all coming on. So Sue, Sean and Carrie. Thank you very much for chatting and, and thanks for doing the show both remotely and, of course, uh, good luck with you at your own research. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Carla. You, you have done an amazing job as always. I love it. <laughs> I love my job. <laughs> if people don't understand that, I love my job. <laughs> I always really appreciate the tough questions because uh, that, that – that's uh, that's what you're for, right? Is to, to pit us up against a wall and ask us the really tough questions that uh, we don't necessarily always want to answer. I was being kind to you, Sean. <laughs> well, hey, we've still got some time. We want to pin against the wall. We've got, uh... see, see, this is what I have to put up with uh, with our grad students. I, I could use age over, you know, the age factor, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I don't think you can do that with me. <laughs> uh, yeah, good. Uh, no, I think I could still, Sue. <laughs> and Carrie, you're just learning all this, so uh, be prepared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Learning I think, quick. I, I think this yes. is a great, a great opportunity as well for for Carrie to show other first year students and particularly master's students that this is a really good opportunity to to just talk and have a conversation about what you're yeah. doing um, at Queen's and um, and I mean having the opportunity with grad chat I think it's it's actually amazing and I know I keep telling people and I think Sean does the same um, you know we just say it's really easy because Colette is such a good interviewer <laughs> Well, thank you very much, people. Uh, you know, soon these headphones are not going to fit on my head. <laughs> but but that is a that is a good shout out to all you grad students and even postdoctoral fellows. Don't forget, I'd love to talk to you on this show because I do love a chat. So, <laughs> so thank you, everyone, for coming on. And we're going to have to call it quits there. So don't forget, you can download this show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 